We were always taught in school that ever since European colonists arrived in what is now Canada, that it was always a colony of either England or France. However, it's a little known fact that for a brief time the Maritimes were conquered by the Dutch and were a colony called Nova Hollandia. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. This strange footnote in Maritimes history began in 1673 when a powerful Dutch fleet was sailing from Dutch colonies in the Caribbean up the coast of what is now the United States. It was commanded by Urien Arnouts in his flagship named the Flying Horse. There was a blurry legal distinction back then between a military sea captain and a pirate, and Captain Arnouts seemed to walk this line quite finely. His Dutch fleet sailed up the coast, attacking British settlements and ships before coming to port at a city then named New Amsterdam. You might recognize the name that this little settlement goes by today, New York City. It was then home to some 2,500 people, and that was a really big city by the standards of European settlements in North America at the time. By contrast, all of the French settlements in what was then called Acadia, which are now the Maritimes in Canada, were then home to fewer than 800 Europeans. When he docked in New Amsterdam, Urien Arnouts learned that the war with the British was over, and that he shouldn't have been attacking all those towns and ships. Oops. While figuring out what to do next, he happened to meet the mysterious John Rode. At the later trial at the end of Nova Hollandia, the enigmatic John Rode was painted as the mastermind behind all of the events which later occurred, and was variously described as a pirate, a coasting pilot, and an adventuring type. The reality is that we don't really know for certain who he was, where he came from, and who may or may not he may have actually been working for. John Rode told Captain Arnouts about the French colonies called Acadia, how wealthy and prosperous they were, and how thinly populated and barely defended the land that is now the Maritimes were. Captain Arnouts was convinced by John Rode to take over Acadia. He got John Rode to agree to become his pilot and to take an oath of allegiance to the Dutch Prince of Orange, and they set sail. Acadia was actually somewhat larger back then than the Maritimes are today. They also contained parts of what is now Maine back then. The largest French fort was in Penaget, in that American state. According to New France's Governor Frontenac's letters, the Dutch arrived in Penaget on August 10th, 1674 with 110 Corsairs Hollandaise against a tiny force of only 30 defenders. The French fort fell in only two hours. The fort's commander was captured, and the Dutch burned a nearby French village. 
The Dutch then sailed onwards up the coast of Maine, burning French villages like Machias as they went. Curiously, the Dutch invasion fleet actually completely avoided the totally undefended French capital of Port Royal, which is now Annapolis Royal in Nova Scotia, which was by far the largest French settlement in Acadia. Which isn't necessarily saying much, it was only home to 400 people, but that was actually half of the population of Acadia at the time. Instead, they sailed up the St. John River in New Brunswick, plundering small communities as they went. At what is today known as Gemsag, they encountered Fort Gemesic, an extremely important trading post where the French traded with Mi'kmaq and Wollastoquay. Fort Gemesic was more of a trading post than a fort. In no position to resist, it surrendered without a fight. Its commander, Monsieur de Joybay, Sieur de Marsan, and Soulange, was taken captive. The Dutch dismantled the fort and took everything they could, up to and including the fortifications themselves. Many of the French residents, including Joybert's wife and his daughter, managed to escape the Dutch and hide at Mount House. You can hear more about this in the Backyard History podcast episode called The Mystery of Mount House. Captain Urien Arnouts declared the area to now be a Dutch colony, naming it Nova Hollandia. During the later trial, it was revealed that the Dutch had buried several bottles along the St. John River, containing notes claiming what is now New Brunswick as a Dutch colony. To Marcus claims, the captain also hid swords of the Prince of Orange subjects, as he called them, along the river. As far as I'm aware, they've never been found, so maybe they're still there today. Back in Europe, the Dutch were in no position to deal with the new colony. This was around the time called Rampshire, meaning disaster year, when the era known as the Dutch Golden Age came abruptly crashing down. In fact, the Dutch government actually didn't even know about their new colony called Nova Hollandia. They were at the time blockaded at sea by England, and being attacked over land by France. Rampjar continued with the Dutch Prime Minister Johan de Witt being murdered and his body partially eaten by an angry mob of furious Dutch citizens. You think politics are rough now? However, while the Dutch government didn't know about this new Nova Hollandia colony, a vastly more wealthy and powerful force did. The Dutch East India Company, or as it was called in Dutch, Verenigde Ostendische Company, or as we'll call it to make things easier, the VOC. The VOC was the first modern corporation, in the sense of having boards and shares and being sold on a stock exchange, and it is still to this day, perhaps the most extreme example of raw, unregulated capitalism ever known. After its founding in 1602, it rapidly grew to become a globe-spanning corporation involved in everything, from shipbuilding to trade, from colonization to slavery, from corruption to smuggling. 
It had forts. It had its own armies. It had its own fleets. It built its own cities. It even built an artificial island of its own outside of Japan when it was banned from trading on Japanese soil itself. The VOC was everywhere. They were from India, South Africa, Taiwan, Vietnam, the Caribbean, absolutely everywhere. The company sent over 1 million Europeans to its forts and its colonies in Asia, vastly more than all of the actual European countries sent combined. They were the first to settle what is now New York City. They discovered Australia, New Zealand. Uh, the word Zealand is actually a Dutch province. They had 4,700 ships and an army of 10,000 men. Basically, I don't think you can even exaggerate how powerful the VOC was back then. How wealthy was the VOC? Okay, so the most valuable corporation in the world today is Apple, which is valued at over $1 trillion. I think 1.3 trillion is what it stands at today. How much was the VOC valued at in today's money? $8 trillion. It was by far the most powerful corporation in all of human history, actually by a very wide margin. Anyone could become a part owner of the VOC by buying a stock, which was an unheard of and possibly pioneered by the VOC itself, which is now the basis of today's entire stock markets. You could go to Amsterdam Stock Exchange and buy stock in the company. You'd have to be a Dutch citizen though. There was only actually one company listed on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, and it was the VOC. This enormous global corporation began trying to take control of Nova Hollandia, appointing the former mayor of New Amsterdam, who was also the wealthiest man in what is now New York City, Cornelius Steenwick, as governor. His lengthy 1676 commission reads, in part, that he is too, select such places for himself in order to cultivate, sow, or to plant, as he shall wish to trade with the natives and to build forts and castles to defend and protect himself against every foreign and domestic force of enemies or pirates, etc. The letter goes on at length like that for a while. The only thing the VOC liked more than absolute corporate monopolies and trading anything that could be bought and sold was paperwork and bureaucracy. Quite a modern corporation in that sense. While there's very little proof to back it up, at the time, Boston citizens strongly suspected that John Rode was a VOC agent and that he had masterminded the entire Nova Hollandia saga on behalf of his employer. We don't know this for sure though. Actually, we don't really know all that much about any of the people involved in the story at all. Most of the information from this comes from the later trial that took place in Boston after the fall of Nova Hollandia. In any case though, it wouldn't really matter, because the Dutch made a critical early error that would lead to the end of Nova Hollandia, before the VOC got a proper foothold on it, and before its freshly appointed governor ever actually made it to Nova Hollandia. After conquering Acadia and declaring it to be now Nova Hollandia, the Dutch fleet then sailed back to Boston, where they sold all of their plunder, including the French cannons they'd captured to the city. They also ransomed their prisoners back to the French for the price of 1,000 beaver pelts. Captain Urien Arnouts then sailed off in his ship, called the Flying Horse, back to the Caribbean. He was going to a Dutch colony called Curaco, 
to recruit settlers to move up to Nova Hollandia. While he was gone, John Rode was placed in command of the new Dutch colony. John Rode was left with several Dutch officers now under his command. They bought some extra ships, and they hired some local crews in Boston. One of these ships was named Edward and Thomas, and it was commanded by a man named Peter Rodrigo, who was from Flanders. Another ship, which was called the Penobscot Shallop, was commanded by a Dutch officer named Cornelius Anderson. John Rode and his commanders, with their ships, sailed back up to the Bay of Fundy, where they made the critical error that brought about the downfall of the new colony. They enforced a trade blockade. This meant that only the Dutch would be allowed to trade in Nova Hollandia. This would have been straight out of the VOC's usual playbook, which was trying to get exclusive rights to a valuable resource and jacking up prices to increase their profits. But, of course, the 800 French citizens weren't the only people in Acadia back then. They were vastly outnumbered by Mi'kmaq, Wulistaquay, and Pescamukati people. The French, when they controlled Acadia, had made no effort to interfere with the vast and lucrative trade that the Mi'kmaq, Wulistaquay, and Pescamukati communities had going on with the merchants in Boston and New Amsterdam. There was very little indication that either the indigenous people or the Boston merchants were particularly upset by the Maritimes becoming a Dutch colony at first. Or, for that matter, they didn't seem to really have much opinions on Nova Hollandia at all. Everyone seemed fine with Nova Hollandia at first. When the Dutch declared that only the Dutch, effectively meaning the VOC, were allowed to trade with Mi'kmaq, Wulstaquay, and Pescamukati peoples from now on, that caused some upset. But everyone actually just tried to uh, ignore that at first and carry on trading like before. However, when this little Dutch fleet, commanded by Rode, Rodrigo, and Anderson, sailed up to blockade the mouth of the Bay of Fundy and began stopping the trade ships and seizing the cargo they had bought from the indigenous peoples, well, this crossed the line. About a year into the blockade, Boston merchants hired a privateer named Samuel Mosley to rid them of the Dutch. The American money was used to hire British mercenaries, French ships, and indigenous fighters to unite to defeat the Dutch. The Dutch were actually no match for this united alliance, which quickly took over their few forts, which had been mostly located in Maine. Nova Hollandia came to an abrupt end in a dramatic sea battle in the spring of 1675. This sea battle was not dramatic because of the death and destruction, though. While there was an awful lot of firing of guns on all sides, nobody was killed. And it's not entirely clear that any of the cannonballs fired during this battle actually even hit any of the ships they were aimed at. No. This battle was dramatic because, as the combined British and French fleet approached, several of the Dutch ships tore down their Dutch flags and began firing on the other Dutch ships. And everyone was firing at everyone else in a battle that descended to complete chaos. 
the main three Dutch ships, those ones commanded by Rode, Rodrigo, and Anderson, all surrendered. They and several other Dutch officers were brought to Boston, where they were tried for piracy. What actually happened in that bizarre battle is somewhat confusing to sift through in the trial's documents. It's almost certain that some people here were lying, and it's possible that actually everyone involved in the trial was lying. John Rode claimed that he hired up a lot of, well, employees from amongst the general public in both the English and the French colonies. He claimed that he paid them the then extraordinarily generous salary of seven pounds per month for their services. The captains and sailors on those ships who betrayed the Dutch during the battle, however, claimed that they had been innocent merchants just trying to trade with the Mi'kmaq, Wulstaquay, and Pescamukati when they were halted by John Rhodes' Dutch ships. They claimed that he threatened that if they did not join the Dutch, that he would take their ships and leave them stranded on the shore where they would have to, and this is a direct quote, be forced to eat roots. It's not clear who was lying here, although it's possible that both were telling the truth at the same time, and it's also possible that both were lying. Uh, the trial itself, though, was sensational and lurid. The Dutch captain's defense lawyer was the flamboyant Increase Mather, a name you might remember today for his infamous role in the Salem Witch Trials. Interestingly, the VOC had paid to hire the defense lawyers. What made the trial so sensational was the incredibly bizarre series of things that happened just before and around the time of it. The Dutch prisoners arrived in Boston on April 7th. The trial began on May 17th. Between those dates, only a little more than a month apart, several of the complainants against the Dutch died under mysterious circumstances. Even more astonishingly, John Rhodes' personal ship, which was impounded in Boston Harbor at the time, somehow blew up in what was described as a great explosion, which killed two of the most important people who were going to testify against him. At the end of a brief but extraordinarily complicated trial, in which very little is clear, and the juries had to be repeatedly sent back under orders to find a verdict after failing to do so, all three of the main Dutch captains were found guilty of piracy and sentenced to death. However, one week before they were due to be executed, King Philip's war broke out. King Philip, in this case, was the nickname for Metacomet, who was the chief of the Poconockets, suddenly threatened by enemies right on their very doorsteps, Boston's officials seemed to have offered the Dutch captains condemned to death the opportunity to join them instead of being executed. Captain Rodrigo fought alongside the British in Maine, while Cornelius Anderson actually managed to get his ship, the Penobscot Shallop, back and ended up, of all things, fighting alongside his earlier enemy, Samuel Mosley. 
Sam Mosley is actually still quite famous in America today. A lot of American military units consider him a forefather of theirs, like the US Rangers, for example. In his admittedly heavily mythologized American stories about him, because Americans are definitely good at mythologizing their past, he is sometimes accompanied by a sidekick of sorts, who is simply called the Buccaneer. The Buccaneer is Cornelius Anderson. Cornelius Anderson actually managed to survive this war, and he did eventually make it back home. Tracking what became of the strange story of Nova Hollandia's mysterious main character, though, is harder. It doesn't seem that the Boston authorities actually offered John Rode the same deal as the other captains. Remember, they firmly believed that all of this was his fault. On the other hand, they were also curiously reluctant to kill him. They delayed his execution date at least three times. An extraordinarily complicated and strange paper trail of lawsuits seems to be the reason for the delays. It's not clear who was launching and paying for all of these lawsuits to try and halt John Rhodes' execution, but if you recall that the VOC paid for the Dutch captain's legal defense, we might be able to make a guess who wanted to get him freed. Eventually John Rhodes was released from prison, and he was banished from Boston after paying a bill for his time in jail. Afterwards, John Rode worked for the VOC and was sent elsewhere in the world, although it's not particularly clear where he went or what he did next. That he did work for them, though, perhaps adds a bit of credence to those rumors that he had masterminded the entire bizarre takeover in the Maritimes on behalf of that giant corporation. Over one year later, after all of this was over, on September the 11th, 1676, the Dutch government finally learned for the first time that they had a new colony named Nova Hollandia. The Dutch government quickly signed off on papers officially declaring Nova Hollandia a colony and making John Rode its governor. But by then, Nova Hollandia was long gone, and the French once again controlled the land they called Acadia. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.